If you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. We're going through a series called Foundational Framework. Hopefully you have a handout which has notes in it that we will be referring to. Hopefully you have a pen. Does everyone have a pen? Everyone has a pen. That's beautiful. I love it. Nobody's going to get hurt today. I like it. That's good. Let's go over these foundational truths on our notes here real quick, just so that you know where we've been. Number one, the Bible, that hopefully you hold, or if you don't hold, there's plenty back there for you to take, especially because the Lockman Foundation has just sent us 96 of them for free. So grab it. It's yours. Give it to someone. Encourage them to read it. Talk with them about it. The Bible is God's self-revelation. He wants to be known. And that's how He wants to be known. Through His special revelation, the Word. Number two, God is the eternal, sovereign Creator. And all that He creates is good. He is the Creator. We are the creatures. And we are ultimately answerable to Him, whether we believe in Him or not. We will all give an account before Him. Number three, man is a responsible agent held to a moral standard, a standard which the Creator sets. Number four, sin originates within a person, separating us from God. Sin separates us from God. This is what makes what we just commemorated in communion so vital. I hope that the cross doesn't get old for you. I hope that Jesus dying in our place doesn't get old for you. I hope that's something that is constantly fresh. And if it's not, it's important to maybe take a moment and ask the question, how did the greatest thing that ever happened in all of history get stale? We talk about the the fireworks that go on out in the Dells every year, right? It seems like what everybody, oh, you wouldn't believe it last year, right? I hear it. Jesus is way cooler than that. Newsflash, right? The last one, God declares one righteous... By faith alone, apart from works. What is faith? Faith is a conviction that something is true. It is a response to the truth that you have heard. Romans 10.17 is very clear. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Everybody with me? Saved one way. I think we got that down, but just in case there's any visitors that think there might be another way to Jesus, nope, faith alone, that's it. Believing it. Have you heard the good news? Do you believe it? If you have, you now have eternal life. It's a done deal. You're sealed. Good stuff. So now we're going to hit on a subject that you probably don't care about. That sounds awesome, right? Everybody's looking for coffee right now. It's a shame we live in such a day and age where I would hang a flag like this over the pulpit, and we would immediately think political. We would immediately have a political mindset about it. And the reason why that's dangerous is because while there are politics involved in Israel, and while what you mainly hear in the mainstream is political in nature, 
Israel's people are worth far more than a political segment of CNN. It's a lot more. And some of the best friends that the nation of Israel has right now are Bible-believing Christians. And the reason is, is because by reading the Word of God, they've done two things. Number one, they see the wealth of Israel and God's special relationship to her. But number two, Bible-believing Christians have not made the common day mistake which is known today as replacement theology. Replacement theology says God is done with Israel and has set Israel aside because of her consistent disobedience. And now the church is the new Israel or the spiritual Israel. And they deny that God can work with both Israel and the church at the same time. Now, that's tragic to me. Because it, it tells me that it's not that those people can't read, it's that they don't know how to read. And I don't mean that to sound abrasive or, or, or um, malicious in any way, but God's relationship with Israel is extremely clear. Has he forgotten his chosen people whom he foreknew? Certainly not. All the Spanish translations say, no way, Jose! In no way, it's actually a double negative in the Greek, and it is a strong bearing upon, no, is what it is. It's very abrasive. In fact, I, I, I don't even know, I'm going to tell you guys this, and I don't even know why, because it doesn't make sense. Look with me real quick. Put your finger here in Exodus 3. Put your notes there or something. Turn with me to Romans 11. I want to show you this just because of how crazy it is. I was talking with a guy on Twitter. That's always a good way to start a conversation, isn't it? We were going round and round about theology. In Romans chapter 11, let me find it here exactly what we were talking about. Let me just read this to you. Verses 1 through 6. I say then, is God, uh, sorry, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. There's the double negative. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is Paul speaking. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, those that he knew previously. He says here, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone and left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? What does God have to say about that situation? And this is taking an event, a historical event in the Old Testament, and applying it to the point that he's trying to make now. Okay, Israel's lost hope. They're gone for it. I don't know what else to do here, God. And here's what he says. The divine response, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, there were still people in Israel who were believers. They had not capitulated or come under the guise of idolatry. And so it says here, they've not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5, 
In the same way, just like in that instance, and now he's going to apply the Old Testament to this. Here's his application of it. There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Why? Because grace and works are oil and water. They do not mix. In talking to this gentleman, I brought him to this passage to say there is still a future hope for Israel. He said, well, if you think that that passage is about Israel, you got a lot of problems. It's not that they can't read. It's that they don't know how to read. You see that? What has Satan done? Because this person's a brother in Christ. What has Satan done within the church? To blind people to the future of Israel. I think it's important that we look at some of those things. Let's go back to Exodus 3. And let me get out from behind the pulpit before I freak some of you out like I'm going to preach back there the whole time. I know. <laughs> Exodus 3. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of who? My people. Now, this is important. Israel is still in slavery in Egypt, and they've been in this incubator, essentially, growing, blossoming into a nation, experiencing God's special privilege and blessing amongst a pagan culture and people. And he is growing them. And he is laying his ownership, his hand upon them. They are my people. My people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down. Anytime you see that Yahweh, that's God's personal name, Yahweh has come down to something. He is condescending himself. And this is an important concept for us to get because in the Old Testament, the idea of coming down or condescending, when God would condescend himself, that is the very encapsulation of what it is for him to be gracious. The Old Testament idea of grace is the idea of stooping down or condescending yourself down in order to relate or to communicate with someone. So I have come down to deliver, to save, to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just in case you weren't sure what land that is, he lets you know. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you, speaking to Moses, to Pharaoh, so that you may bring who? My people. My people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you want to follow along with your notes, and you can read the elaboration later, I just want to give you the headings. First thing we're going to see, of course, is that Israel is God's people, but he also labels them as his firstborn son. 
Look over at chapter 4, starting in verse 18. This is after Moses gave five reasons why he shouldn't do what God told him to do. That's always fun, right? If you want to listen to that sermon, it's a few ago. Verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, and the reason why he had to ask his permission is because he was in charge of watching all of Jethro's livestock. He says, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life for dead. Remember, they wanted to kill Moses because when Moses saw an abusive situation between a Jew and an Egyptian, something rose up in Moses to where he killed the Egyptian and tried to hide his body. When he got found out, he fled the country. Verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Everybody remember that, right? Staff goes down as a snake, the hand leprous as snow. Everybody remember those? Okay, making sure we got that. He says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my, what's it say? Firstborn. Now, from what you know about the scriptures, why would this be significant that God would bring this up? Why? What goes on with the firstborn? A double portion of inheritance, so there's this blessing that happens for the one that is firstborn in the family. What else do we know? Well, he does that, yes. That's in the next verse, though. But you're good. You're thinking. You're tracking. I like it. Yes, Jerry. Okay. He is the one that is to head up the family, is responsible for leading. In fact, did you know this? Did you know that Israel is actually considered the firstborn, not just amongst God's family, because what other born is there in God's family? Is there another nation of people that are called like that? Not, no, not like this. Do you realize that Israel is actually the head of every nation that's ever been created? Did you know that? Some of you don't look like you believe me. Okay, great. So let's turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Just want to show this to you real quick. Jeremiah 31, just so you can mark it and know it. Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll look at verse 7. We'll read from 7 to 9. I want to show you something else real quick, but... Just to check this out. And remember, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is the name Yahweh. It is his personal name. It is his name where he invites you to step in and know him. And anytime, whenever Jesus is questioned, you know, before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh is what he's saying there. The English, and it kind of skews it. Whenever the, the mob comes with Judas to get him, we're looking for Jesus. Our translations say, I am he. It's not what it says. He stands up and he says, Yahweh is what he says. And that's why everybody falls down at the power of his proclamation. He is God. It's his personal name with people. So, 
For thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of nations, the head of nations, the leader, the greatest, the foremost of all the people on the earth is the idea. And of course, Jacob is the name also for Israel. He says here, proclaim, give praise and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Is all of Israel saved? Not all of them are going to be saved. Why? Because they get rebellious and they do their own thing. But those who heed, like those who were not bowing the knee to Baal, those are the remnant. Those are the ones who will be saved. And that way, all Israel will be saved. He says here, verse 8, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, and they will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water, on a straight path in which they will not stumble. In other words, the Lord is clearing up all of their problems, is the idea. For I am a what? Father to Israel, and Ephraim, that's another name for Israel that is often used. Why? Because Ephraim is the one who took on that promise after Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the promise moves on to Ephraim is the people, and Judah is the one who will produce the blessing in the seed. If you don't remember that, that was two or three Sundays ago. Notice, and Ephraim is my what? My firstborn. Israel is the head of all nations. Israel is his firstborn, and he is a father to them. That alone merits the sacredness of us understanding the relationship. Why should I care about Israel? Here's the reason why. is because we will never be more like God unless we love the things that God loves. God loves Israel. God has a plan for Israel. Therefore, we should too. In fact, you can't even handle the book of Revelation if you don't have a respect for Israel. It is impossible. You will read everything through a skewed lens. How about the next one? Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Or as Tom likes to call it, dude, you're on to me. Deuteronomy 4. Tom is the comic relief of the ages, is he not? Deuteronomy 4, verses 36 through 38. Thank you for bringing your Bible. I love hearing pages turn. I love it. It excites me to no end. It really does. Deuteronomy 4, verse 36. Out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice. The children of Israel were unique because they audibly heard Yahweh speak. The first person that presented the Ten Commandments to them was not Moses. It was Yahweh. The children gathered around a mountain, ready to listen, and as fire and thunder came off of this mountain, they actually heard the voice of God speak to them in an audible fashion. So much so that if you would have had a tape recorder, you could have hit record and you could have played back God's voice later. They heard his voice. He has revealed himself to you, Israel, in a way that he had never revealed himself to anyone ever before. You are his special people. So notice this. Out of the heavens, he lets you hear his voice to discipline you 
And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he what? He loved your fathers. Therefore he chose your descendants or their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. He personally, in other words, his presence was among you in leading you out of Egypt. He says here, verse 38, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Does it matter if there is a nation greater? Does it matter if there's a nation smarter? Does it matter if there's a nation stronger? It does not. In fact, of what you know about geography, think about where Israel is located right now. They have the Mediterranean Sea off to the west of them, right? And then what's surrounding them north, east, and south? Muslims. Everywhere. You can say their names. It's okay. Everywhere. And they hate, hate Israel. In fact, in a speech to the United Nations, then acting Iranian president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, if you ever want to look him up, he's a fun guy. He said to them, we will not rest until Israel has been wiped off the map. We will not rest. Now, is that a guy that needs to go to counseling or what? (laughs) Or he needs to read the word and see what God thinks about it, right? May 15th, 1948. Tom was the only one alive at that time. Why in the world is that important? At midnight, Israel came into being. That was at 6 p.m. Eastern time, May 14th, 1948 for us. David Ben-Gurion, I think is how you say his last name, read a Declaration of Independence drafted up for a state of Israel. Now, no nation in the world has ever been dispersed as Israel was. Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. The rest of Israel fell, I believe it was between 120 and 130 A.D. Disbanded, scattered all over the world. Just as when we read the Old Testament, God told us it would happen. If you disobey me, I will scatter you among the nations. But in 1948, they had been brought back in and declared, and thank goodness for Harry Truman, who signed off on it and says, yes, we will recognize Israel as a nation. Now, this whole idea of a Palestinian state that exists alongside them, that has been offered in 1947, in the summer of 2000, and also in the year of 2008, where talks tried to move forward. And they were ready to put together a Palestinian state to exist as long, alongside of the Jews in Israel. The problem is, is the Palestinians don't want a state. They believe it is their land. Again, Wolf Blitzer, turning to Genesis 12. Can you imagine? Turning to Genesis 15 and saying, I want to inform all the American people who the land belongs to. It would be incredible, wouldn't it? It would be amazing. He's Jewish, and he's Jewish. Let's exactly point that out. So notice, 
He is their chosen. Israel is Yahweh's chosen. Turn over to chapter 7. Chapter 7. Holy people. You've been set apart is the idea. To Yahweh your Elohim, the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, very interesting, for his own possession. That idea for his own possession is the idea of Israel is his special treasure. Anybody got a favorite piece of jewelry maybe that you've gotten? Keep it locked away in a safe or something. You only bring it out. You polish it with a diaper every once in a while when you want to show it off to people. Something like that. I don't know. But something special like that. A prized possession. Notice, Yahweh's prized possession is the nation of Israel. He views them as a gleaming and beautiful treasure to behold. He says here, You're his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. You were the fewest of all the peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, kept the Abrahamic covenant, he is bound by his word to Israel. Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand and he redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. Pay attention. He keeps His what? His covenant and His loving kindness, same word, hesed, His loyal love, to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. If you're someone who writes in the margin of your Bible this idea of he is faithful, notice how it reinforces it here in verse 9. He is God, the faithful God, the firm, the certain God. And how is he faithful? He keeps his what? His covenant and his loving kindness, his loyal love. He is committed. He is in a committed relationship with Israel regardless of how rebellious or idolatrous, or adulterous, they choose to be. He is in it for the long haul. He will see it through. Now, why is this important? Here's the reason why. It doesn't bring up the covenant for no reason. Israel is a model of how you and I can trust God. I mean, think about it. What reason has God given you to trust Him? What reason? Can you think of a reason? Well, he gave Jesus for our sins. Yeah, that's cool. Were you there? Did you see it? How can you trust it? How do you know he's telling the truth about that event in the scriptures? Or could it possibly be with the way that God's hand works with Israel that would serve as a basis for his credibility that gives us the opportunity to trust him in everything he says. See, here's the interesting thing. If he's wrong in one point in his word, you can't trust any of it. But what is Israel? Israel is a monument of faithfulness of God's relationship and love. In fact, it's interesting. There's an article that was written. If you guys notice, I put something else in there. Pence, our vice president Pence, recently uh, visited Israel. If you want to read that, I just thought it would be helpful to see where 
America stands with Israel now and is recognizing Jerusalem as their capital, which is a huge thing that has generated great tensions in the Middle East, and that our president has promised to move our U.S. embassy there by the end of 2019. Gutsy move. Gutsy move. But here's the thing. I will bless him who blesses you, and I will curse him who curses you. And I believe that we are in a pretty safe position as a nation because of a strong stance on that. Now, am I political about the situation? No, man. Honestly, I could care less about politics. I'll be honest with you. But am I excited that a leadership is taking those type of strides? Absolutely. Somebody asked a uh, resident of Gaza who is a Hamas commander, so of of an Arabic background, Muslim background probably, doesn't care anything for the Jews. And the question was is, how come when you guys shoot rockets at Israel, you don't seem to hit them very well? Here's the response. We do aim our rockets, but their God changes their path in midair. Has anybody heard of the Iron Dome? Anybody ever heard of that? Israel has a defense system known as the Iron Dome. And what it is, is it's essentially a set of rockets that are set up that are known as interceptors. And they're set up all over the place so that whenever a rocket is shot in from one of these surrounding Arabic countries, in order to do some sort of damage to a heavy populated area, the Iron Dome exists in such a way as to where it measures the wind, trajectory, all this other stuff, when is it going to hit, and it shoots off rockets in order to destroy those things in the air so that all the people remain safe. All the school teachers there also conduct school with semi-automatic weapons around their shoulders. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know we should bring that to America, but still, I guarantee you have very little discipline problems with someone with a semi-automatic weapon trying to teach you English or Hebrew or whatever, right? But I thought this was interesting, and I wanted you guys to be able to follow along because there was an incident that happened not too far ago. I think it was in 2014. I asked Mitch to put it up on the screen for you guys so you could read it together with me as I read along. A missile was fired from Gaza. Iron Dome precisely calculated its trajectory. We know where these missiles are going to land, down to a radius of 200 meters. The particular missile was going to hit either in Azraeli Towers, not sure what that is, but obviously populated, in Kyria, which is Israel's equivalent of the Pentagon, or a central Tel Aviv railroad station. Hundreds could have died. We fired the first interceptor at the incoming missile. It missed. The second interceptor, and it missed, which is not characteristic of what this system was designed to do. This is very rare. I was in shock. At this point, we had just four seconds until the missile lands. We had already notified emergency services to converge on the target location and had warned of a mass casualty incident. Suddenly, I like the word suddenly in this situation, Iron Dome, which calculates wind speeds, among other things, shows a major wind coming from the east, a strong wind that sends the missile into the sea. We were all stunned. I stood up and shouted, there is a God. I witnessed this miracle with my own eyes. I was not told or reported to me. I saw the hand of God send that missile into the sea. Some of the eyewitness accounts say it was 
Can you imagine? God cares for his people. God has a plan for Israel. God's here to protect them. God will take care of them. Let's look at a few other passages. Ezekiel 6. So if we're supposed to be so sold out on Israel, and as people who actually believe that the Bible means what it says, are we supposed to excuse their sin? Does God excuse their sin? No, and neither should we. In fact, if they're God's special people, and if they've been given a greater amount of revelation or God's information revealed to them, then they are that much more accountable and culpable for what they know and acting upon what they know. Look at chapter 6 of Ezekiel. Chapter 6, verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel, that's what he calls Ezekiel the prophet, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. Now notice, Lord there, L, capital L, lowercase, O-R-D, and then capital G, O-D. Adonai Yahweh means master is what it means. It's the very words in Genesis 15 that Abraham uses saying, Oh, Lord God, oh, Master Yahweh, oh, Adonai Yahweh. How will I know that someone beyond Eliezer will receive this blessing? How do you know that I'm going to have kids? Please show it to me. So notice, it's of high reverence. Thus says Adonai Yahweh to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys, Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. High places were pagan concoctions for worship. Verse 4, So your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed, and I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their altars or sorry, idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and the high places will be desolate, that your altars may become waste and desolate. Your idols may be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. The slain will fall among you, and you will know, by all this taking place, you will know that I am, am, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that I am Yahweh. You lost sight of who God was because you got involved in burning incense to false gods. You got involved in carving carving images out of stone and wood. You got caught up in thinking that a lot of other things mattered besides Yahweh God. So he disciplines Israel. And he disciplines them drastically. Why? All sin deserves death. The fact that not all of them are dead is by grace. We have got to think seriously about our God. In doing so, what is he trying to get across to them? You will know. You will finally grasp it. Maybe this will get your attention. You ever discipline your child in such a way where you were really trying to get their attention? See, you giggle because you know. You really want to get their attention here. Why? So you won't forget who God is. 
You know the interesting thing, the church is not Israel, but God disciplines us the same way. He does things that get our attention so he will bring us back to a point, remember who I am. He does that. So do we? are we all just pro-Israel that we excuse sin? No. We stand with them on the things that are noble, and we do not stand with them on the things that are sinful. Let's finish up here. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. We're going to start in verse 1. If you want something to meditate on throughout the week, what we covered in communion, Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13, this passage right here, Isaiah 43, if you want something to really think through about the greatness of God, I believe that he unfolds it pristinely here. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. That idea is a personal recognition. I am recognizing you publicly in my affiliation with you. It's kind of like a graduation ceremony and they call your name when you come by to shake the hand and pose for the picture and get the diploma, that kind of thing. Public recognition so that everybody is in the know. I have called you by name. You are what? Mine. Does your, does your mind have a capital M there? I love it. That makes me go, you are mine, right? Notice, ownership. You are my people. You are my people that I have loyal love towards, I've made covenant with. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. I love the fact that God says, because of my relationship with you, Israel, there aren't going to be any waters. And because of my relationship with you, there aren't going to be any floods. There's not going to be any fire. Notice he doesn't say that. God's a realist. That's what I love. He knows that sin is real. He knows that problems are sure. But what does he say? It's not that I'm here to save you through the situation or save you from the situation. I'm here to save you through the situation. Man, I could learn a lot from that. Notice he says here, verse 3: For I am Yahweh, your Elohim. The Holy One of Israel, you're what? Oh, big capital S on that one, isn't there? Your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give another men, or I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the peoples who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together. Remember, Israel is the head of all the nations, and they're all gathered together. See if you can think of what's going on here in this picture that he's painting. 
so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witness that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is true. Does everybody see, does everybody get the concept in your mind that he's talking almost like a court proceeding playing out? Does everybody see that? Everybody's assembled together. There are witnesses. People are giving testimony. Present their witness that they may be justified, that they may be vindicated in God's sight. In other words, can you give a defense against Yahweh? Can you give some sort of defense that he should exempt you in this situation? And notice, or let them hear and say, it is true. Why? Because whatever judgment the judge gives, you have to agree with. Why? Because he's the, he's the righteous and true judge. It says here, verse 10, here's what I want you to get. You are my what? You are my witnesses. Israel has a mission. They were chosen for a purpose, a task, a mission to fulfill. They are the witnesses of God. In fact, they are to serve as God's megaphone to the nations. They are to be a shining example of God's faithfulness. You can believe what God says. They are my witnesses. He says here, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me. Why? Because he didn't want anybody in unbelief. He wants people to know him and wants people to believe him. Why? That's how you get saved. So he says here, and, and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I am Yahweh and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared by his word and saved, rescued them and proclaimed by his word. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? He is the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. And because he has something to say about a tiny little nation that occupies a small, fragment piece of land compared to what they have been promised should mean everything to you and me. Why is that? Well, I can't relate with it. Well, we're talking about Jewish people. I don't even know anything about that. This star looks weird. I don't understand. Because if he's not right about them, he's not right about anything. Because if he has made a promise, and especially those promises have largely come to pass, do we have as many Jews as the stars of the sea? Or or stars of the sky? Sands of the sea? Do we? We do. Deuteronomy chapter 1 says it. Moses pegs it. Do we have the fulfillment of a blessing that will bless all people? Isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ who dies for the sins of the world? Only way you and I can be redeemed is through Israel because it was promised through them. Do they occupy the full extent of the land they've been promised? All of prophetic history in this book rests upon that promise. So far, God's batting two out of three. And he's got one coming up in the end, at the end of the great tribulation. Israel is a witness to God's faithfulness. And by them is how we judge whether or not we can trust our God. 
If you don't care about Israel, I hope you do now. I hope you care about them because that's who God cares about that. Not accepting their sin blindly, nothing like that. God didn't do that. But understanding that they are a people worth praying for, and they are a people worth helping in some way. Right now, they're gathered into their land, yes, but they're still in unbelief. They do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. That's something we need to pray about. We need to pray for the salvation of Israel. You may not be able to relate to this message at all. You know what? That's okay. But I promise you it's biblical, as we've clearly seen. And I hope that you can embrace that part of it. Let's pray. Father, whatever our our thinking has been about Israel, Lord, if we just thought of them as as political, I pray, God, that that be set aside. Um, Help us to understand that they are a special treasure in your sight, that they are an object of your affection, that your word hinges upon their existence, and not just their existence, but their flourishing and being ushered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ when he returns to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. So, Father, bring about in our hearts a a care for this matter and realize just how integral they are in the history in which we live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.